And because of God's grace, through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and good sponsorship and committed, dedicated home group and bushels and newcomers, I haven't had a drink or any mind or emotion altering substances since Halloween 1978. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Al for inviting me down here. It's, it's, it's a privilege to participate in things like this, a very laser-like focused weekend. And I'm, I'm excited about hearing my friend Don share. I really enjoy what he has to share. We had just had him scheduled to come out uh, talk at my home group, and something came up, and we have to reschedule him. Uh, we're kind of excited about the prospect of shanghaiing him out west sometime. And, uh, um, I, I'm just curious, how many people here are within their first year of abstinence? Not to embarrass you. Okay, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, is anybody here in their last year of abstinence? <laughs> <laughs> just checking, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm supposed to talk about surrender, and I, I, all I have is my experience. I'm not an authority on anything except failure. And I'll tell you, when something that happened to me, this was my first really encounter with the concept of surrender. And it was in 1977 after a, oh, got a long and depressing and lonely, tedious period of abstinence of about 11 months, 10 or 11 months. And I, I just, I, I needed some relief. And I, I went on a drunk and I ended up in a county jail. I never made it back to the halfway house Sunday night. I ended up Monday morning at this county jail, and I'm, uh, I mean, this is a bad spot I'm in. Uh, they gave me a phone call. There's nobody to call. I'm totally alone. I'd, I, I don't know where I'm going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm facing a pretty serious charge of, of a felony uh, hit-and-run DUI in a stolen car. I, I'm looking at probably two years or more in a state penitentiary. I'm totally alone. There's not a person on the planet that I can turn to. And I don't know how that happened to me because I was the guy that at one time had a lot of friends. I was the guy who was valedictorian of his senior class. I was the guy who had uh, parents that were not alcoholic that just loved me. They would have done anything for me. And I'm all alone. I'm out on this limb, and I, I, I feel like my life's over. And I went to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in that county jail, and I, I went uh, not for sobriety, because by this time I had been exposed to Alcoholics Anonymous for several years. I started coming here in my teens. I uh, didn't want to. I was kind of made to come here. And somewhere over the, over the years, I... Uh, came to the conclusion that you were a great bunch of people, but what you had to offer wasn't what I needed. And I wasn't quite like you because when I quit drinking, I'm not about anything you're about, really. I don't feel like anything like any of the people in AA seem to feel when I quit drinking. And I, I don't know what was wrong with me, but I had spent the preceding couple years in and out of institutions trying psychiatrists and therapists, trying to fix myself and the end result is I'm in this place and I'm it's bad and I went to this AA meeting not not for recovery because I'd given up on Alcoholics Anonymous I I didn't really think there was anything here for me um, I went there for cigarettes to this meeting 
And I went there hoping that maybe somebody in AA, would, with one of this, maybe one of these guys coming in from the outside would have a little money or influence or something. Maybe I could talk him into putting his house up for my bail or something, you know. <laughs> well, they always say they want to help you until you explain it to them. Now when you explain it to them, they're, yeah, they're, not, they're just they're hypocrites. You know that. You can tell them. Sorry about it. <laughs> Anyway, I'm in this. I go into this uh, room where the AA meeting's going to be, and I, uh, I'm waiting for the do-gooders from Alcoholics Anonymous to come in. They always come in. Every institution I've ever ended up in, here comes those AA people. And leading the pack is a guy I know. I, I knew him from another treatment center I was in. He was. I knew him. He used to bring meetings into the detox that I was in. He brought meetings in the halfway house I was in. His name was Woody. He was a fairly long-term member of Alcoholics Anonymous, a very active guy, a kind of guy, not my kind of guy, kind of guy you don't really like. I don't like guys like this. They're, you know, they're grateful for everything and they're happy and they got God in their life and they're just a sunbeam for Jesus. And, you know, oh man, I don't like people. And the worst thing about, about Woody is he's happy and sober. I don't get happy and sober, right? I don't get it. I don't know... He's in there. It's weird. And on a good day, I don't mind those kind of people in AA. But on a bad day, they're hard to be around. And this is a bad day. <laughs> and I'm I'm there, and here he comes, leading the pack of his minions into this meeting. And um, I go up to him and I shake his hand. I tell him how sorry I am for relapsing and. Go into my little spiel about uh, I'm going to turn this around and I'm going to get out of here. And I, I ran a little angle on him to see if he'd put his house up for my bail, and he's not going to go for that. Uh, I'm going to get. I'm going to beat this thing. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get out of this. I'm going to fix. I'm going to pull myself up. I'm going to get back on my feet. And, and Woody's listening to my little. I love the term in the big book. Our little plans and designs. And he's listening to my little plans and designs. And he starts shaking his head. And he, he's, he looks at me and he says, Kid, you're not going to do anything. You're not even going to stay sober. Kid, you haven't hit a bottom. Uh, you haven't surrendered. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I, but I got angry. I didn't say nothing to him, but I got really angry. And I just remember in my head, just my head screaming at him, Who are you to say that to me? It's the most negative. I don't need this negativity. I need positive reinforcement. <laughs> this negativity. Surrender. Hit a bottom. Surrender. Surrender what? I mean, there's nothing left of me. I mean, you know, two years ago, a year ago, I had some stuff. I, you know, I had a job, and there was a couple years back, I had a motorcycle. I mean, a couple years back, I had a girlfriend. I, I had a good job at one time. I. I don't know what he's talking I don't know. There's nothing. To surrender what? And I didn't know what he was talking about. And I, I never did uh, figure that out until I finally got sober down the road just a little bit. And I'd, I got out of there uh, through the graces of a judge who stayed my two-year commitment to state penitentiary and uh, gave me a break, said if I could do certain things, he would reduce it down to a misdemeanor, but I was kind of put on hold, and I had to go into this place in Pittsburgh called the Ark House, and, and I wanted to do everything he said, I just couldn't. I, I'm, I'm the guy that lack of power is my dilemma. I, I can, 
there's something about me that I can I can go through many rehabs. I can get what the importance of not drinking. I can make up my mind that I'm not going to touch that anymore. But no matter how great my resolve is, lack of power is my dilemma, and and the emotions and, and the the vacancy and right in the core of who I am just gnaws away at my resolve to not drink. And after several months in this place, I, I picked up a drink because I... Actually, I didn't pick up a drink initially. I I got a couple bottles of NyQuil. It wasn't that I had a cold, but I could feel one coming. And, uh, which started to get enough alcohol in that to start the phenomenon of craving rolling, you know. And I, uh, next thing I know, I'm out in the streets and there's... Just a matter of time before I'm going to go to jail, and uh, I tried to take my own life on that run. And I, uh, I tried to take my own life, not because I'm a suicidal guy. I'm not. I'm really a homicidal guy. I'd rather kill you. But uh, I got back. To, I, I just felt so hopeless, and not because of the fact that I was facing time in jail. Not because of the fact that I was alone and I, what I did to my family and the, and the shame and the guilt and uh, how I've ruined my life and the, the, the women that tried to love me and I didn't mean to, but I seemed to punish them for that somehow. And none of that was really what brought me to this place of trying to take my own life. What brought me to that place was a hopelessness that I understood a truth about me that I didn't want to understand and the truth was is no matter what I do I can't get back to the days when the magic and the ease and comfort of drinking uh, I can't get jump start that I can't get back to it and yet I can't imagine life without it either because I'm abstinence feels like I'm doing time and so I'm, I, I'm trying to take my own life on this bridge and I can't because I've always been inherently a coward and I'm, you know, I can't do it. And I came off of that drunk in a detox in Las Vegas, Nevada. I'd hitchhiked cross country on the run, uh, looking over my shoulder uh, in a rummied condition, going from town to town to bottle of wine, to bottle of wine, to six pack of beer, to bottle of vodka, just trying to keep as much medicine flowing through me to keep the madness at bay to get me across the country. And I ended up in this detox and something had happened to me. And I, I if, if I could, I can't put it into words. I, 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 can't, I can't explain what it was, uh, except that something was different coming off that last run. And the first time in, in seven years I sat in meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous in that detox, as I'd sat in probably a hundred or two hundred meetings, but I started I actually started to hear you. There's something in me that defends myself against people when I'm sober. And I don't understand that what it is is that I, I feel so less than and so like so bad about myself that, I, that I'm afraid you're going to reject me so I have to beat you to it by putting you down right in my head and so when you're like that it's hard to hear anything here because I, you can't get through this you can't get through me you can't get through my own judgment my making funny and uh, listen to this guy what a bunch of horse crap you know that, that's the stuff I do in my head 
And this time I didn't do it. I just sat there and your experience just washed over me. And I, I hurt you. And it started something within me. And I, right before they were going to check me out of that hospital, one of the counselors in there had said, asked me a, a question. She said, so what's different this time from all the other times that you tried to get sober? And I, I didn't know what, I didn't know. I couldn't, I didn't know what to tell her. I, so I told her, I, well, I just took a third step. Because it was an AA sounding thing to say. I mean, and she brightened up when I said it. She, it was like a, I hit a home run here. And this is good. She got excited. And she was a member of AA. And so she asked me, well, so you said that uh, prayer on page 63. And I, I wouldn't, I almost said yes, but I was afraid she'd ask me about the prayer. And I didn't, I didn't even know the prayer existed. So I said, well, no, I just did it my way. And her whole yeah. continence just sunk, you know. It's like, you, they look at you like you messed yourself or something. Like, you know, you don't know what the, why they're looking at you like that. But they're, they're, you did, you, you know, you know something ain't right. And I, I, a day or so later, they're getting ready to check me out of there. And I am terrified. And I had never been terrified coming out of a place before. Matter of fact, usually... By the time I'm, they're ready to let me loose, I'm pumped. I'm ready. I've been over-treatmentized here. You know, I'm ready to go. And this time, I'm terrified. And I'm terrified because I know a truth about me that I don't want to know. And the truth is that even though I really don't ever want to pick that stuff up again, I will. Maybe not the first day. Maybe not even the first month. But I knew, I knew inside myself that I don't have what it takes to not drink. No matter how determined I am. No matter how much information about alcoholism you give me in a treatment center. No matter how much I connect the dots. No matter how much I get it. I don't have, the, I don't have what it takes. I always drink again. And I felt so hopeless. Um, it's it's a hard thing to put into words this feeling of of knowing you're doing something that you've leached all the fun out of and it's killing you and you can't stop from doing it even when you know you've seen now you've seen through the illusion you see that it ain't going to be like it was when it was when you're 20 you know the truth you know the last the last five or six times you went out the pathetic crying jags and the you know you know that that's what you're signing up for and I know I'm going to I'm going to sign up for it again and I can't stop from signing up for it because I don't I don't I don't do very well sober and in this I was in alone in this uh, room in this detox my roommate was gone and they'd given me a big book of alcoholics anonymous and I opened to remember that Judy had said this prayer on page 63 and I don't even really believe in God but I, there's a line in our book, it says, before we ever come to believe in God or we ever come to believe that A will even work, it says we will come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of our life as we've been living it. And I believe that. And I really believe, I was all about that. And I, uh, for some reason, I took that book and I opened it to page 63 and I, and I'm reading this prayer and it's in the middle, I found it in the middle of the page and it's in that funny language with thee and thou and wilt and I mean, you know, I don't get much, much of it really except the middle of the prayer is this line that says, relieve me of the bondage of self. And I read that 
and I threw that book across that hospital room and I fell down on my knees and I started sobbing and I begged something I didn't even believe in. Because when I read that line, relieve me of the bondage of self, it was like something snapped inside of me. And I knew that the reason I was going to drink again and the reason this time I'll probably get the courage to kill myself and the reason I burnt my life to the ground is because of me and I can't get away from me. I'm shackled to myself in bondage and I don't know that I am stuck here. Because I tried some, I tried free, I, you know, they, they'll tell you in, in treatment centers and stuff, well, they'll say, you know, person you are is going to drink again if you don't change. After about four or five treatment centers, you go, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you change? I mean, and I would, and I, I thought I would change, I thought I'd change so many times. I've had epiphany experiences. I've, I've gone to, I went to a weekend deal one time where they wouldn't let you sleep. And you'd just be up talking about your feelings for three days until, and I mean, it just changed my life for for two weeks, you know. And then, then what happens is it always wears off, and I just I'm back to being me again. And I don't know how to not be back to being me again. And I, the hopelessness was overwhelming. And something happened out of that experience of falling down on my knees, and from somewhere in the depths of my soul I suppose I cried out for help and something happened to me and I I don't know what it was it, I don't know it might have been DT's I don't know what it was but I got a feeling and it might have just been the release of emotion that, that, that made me feel more at peace but I got a sense somewhere inside of me that I was going to be okay if I just immersed myself in alcoholics Anonymous. and I, I don't know where that came from and, uh, and I, st I got out of that, that hospital and I went to 15 meetings a week. I got a sponsor. I started coming back into that hospital. When I got my six months sober, I, the, uh, an impossible thing happened. State of Nevada gave me a driver's license and I wasn't supposed to get a driver's license for another year and a half. I don't know how that happened. And I got myself a guy in AA. Within two weeks after getting that driver's license, a guy in AA had a his dad died, left him this old $100 car that just ran, but that was it. And he, he says, you need a car? I said, yeah. He says, $20 a month. Here, take it. I can afford $20 a month. And uh, I started filling that car up with newcomers and from the halfway house I was living in and going to meetings and having the meetings in the car to the meetings and the meetings in the car on the way back from the meeting. And, and I, I started this path. Uh, and I, there was a man uh, that came to Las Vegas when I was new, and I'd later heard him speak many times, a guy named Chuck Chamberlain. And Chuck, when Chuck talked, I understood what had happened to me. Chuck talked about being surrendered by the bottle. And I, I, I finally got it, why things were different. I had just enough of me beaten out of me to hear you. And before I could never hear you because I had too much me between me and you. And I couldn't hear you. And I, uh, I understand when I heard Chuck talk, I understood all of a sudden a little bit about what had happened to me. When Woody said to me in that county jail, you hadn't surrendered. You see, I didn't know. I was thinking he was talking about stuff or, or I don't know what he was talking about. 
And there's only one thing a guy like me ever has to give up, and it's, it's the first thing it talks about in step three. It says we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God. And I, it's my experience that I cannot turn my life over the care of God until I first abandon my will because it is my judgment of my life. And if you, what my experience is, is you can turn your life over to God all day long if you've retained the judgment machine up in here about the thing that knows what's right and how it better go. I mean, it's like saying, God, here's my life, and there's a list coming of how it better go. <laughs> and then it's, you know, you got the anxiety of God not doing your, you know what depression is. Depression is when God stops doing your will. You know, and it's, and it, it's, so it, so I'm, I get sober, and I make these futile attempts and say prayers and everything to turn my life over to God, but I'm still in the driver's seat. What Woody, what Woody saw when he looked at me is the same thing I've seen a thousand times in institutions. I saw it Wednesday night in the county jail. I saw a guy that had been sober two and a half years, and he's, he's now facing a couple years in the state prison, and he's dying, and he's, he's in charge. He's in charge. I saw the same thing in him. I'm, I'm sure that what he saw in me, a guy dying of alcoholism, insisting on being at the wheel of his own ship listening to nothing except my little plans and designs. I, the great I am is in charge, is at the helm of my ship. And I can't, I can't see me the way you see me. Now, if you'd have, if you'd have watched me for any period of time, you'd, you'd easily have come to the conclusion that whoever's making decisions for this guy is out to kill him. But every decision and little plan I ever came up with made perfect sense in the light of my vacancy that drives me. It seems absolutely appropriate. It's really what I need. Uh, see, I've never been an, a bad intention guy. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not self-destructive. Even though, if you were to step back from me and look at me, you would look, it would look like I'm self-destructive. But what really is, I, I am misdirected in my own reconstruction, is what it really is. I, I, that's the problem, is that I, I'm trying to fix myself with the thing that has broke me. Right? And I don't get that. I don't connect those dots. Now, you could have seen it. But I couldn't see it because I, when I, and I often, not from a lack of trying, I don't know about you guys, but when I, when things are bad in my life, I do a lot of self-examination. I really try to figure stuff out, man. I really do. I'll just think about it until I, I'll, I'll blot the whole world out thinking about my problems. I mean, I just get into it. But I can't really see because what I'm looking, I'm, I'm looking, what I'm looking for, I'm looking with. I'm looking through a series of, of justifications and, and rationalizations and an ability to minimize my stuff and blow up your stuff. And it, there's this, this judgment machine wants to figure out wh who's done this to me. Right? And, and so I, I, don't, I can't see what's wrong with me. I, I have an absolute inability. And that's, and that's true at times to this day. That's why I have a sponsor, and I, I more importantly than having a sponsor, I, I, I really hope that, that I, I stay, God please, I stay sponsorable. 
I don't want to be at the helm of my ship again. I'm watching a guy right now that's sober a long time at the helm of his ship, and he's dying, and he don't know it. And he hasn't picked up a drink yet, but he's in a bad spot. And if he stays there, I don't know how much he can take the restless, irritable, and discontent, and the low-level depressions, and the anxieties, and the feeling of uselessness. I don't know how long he's going to take that before he either picks up a drink or gives in to some kind of these one of these new age medications that is designed especially for us. So I wish they'd cut that crap out. <laughs> and, uh, and it's all as a result. He's exact, and I and, and and I love this guy, and I've been in sobriety where he's at. See, the problem with surrender is it doesn't take. Really, if you've ever, if you've ever, there's a book that influenced Bill Wilson a lot. Matter of fact, he read it the first time in Towns Hospital, and I think it, it it put together one of the pieces of the puzzle why why he became obsessed with helping other drunks and getting involved with people who would enhance his spiritual life. The people he found at the time were the Oxford Group. Was that he read in the, in this book uh, the varieties of religious experience? By William James, if you've ever read it, it's it's a it's a hard read. I really, have. but if you read it, William James looks at these people who have surrendered, who had these conversion experiences, not unlike Bill's in, in Towns Hospital, and I, maybe not unlike that little deal I had or whatever emotional breakdown I had in in the detox. I might not be that much different than that. And what he found is that people have been having those experiences for forever, from the beginning of time. But he found that they had two things in common. The first thing is you never have one of those experiences when you're on a roll. I mean, it never. <laughs> you never just got back from Vegas with two showgirls and the Mega Bucks jackpot and say, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna give up and find God." I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. We all get that. The second thing that he found that these experiences had in common is for them, they were invariably, most of the time, they were transitory experiences. In other words, they don't last. And we all get that. In, in our home groups, in my home group, is probably not much different than yours. It's composed of alcoholics. And there's people in my home group that had been saved, born again, and then drank after that experience. And, and through coming out the backside of those experiences, you're, you're lulled and you think you've arrived. I mean, the problem's solved now. And then two years later, they're drinking again, or three years, or three months, or six years. It's, you never know how long your fuse is for those kind of things. And that was surely my experience, because after that experience of detox, I was good to go for a little while. And then it wasn't any time at all when I started... I started noticing, you know, you just start noticing what's wrong with people and how they're, you know, the job is, they're taking advantage of me again and you know, people in AA are phony and, you know, it just, it starts. The, the will, the will, the judgment machine grows back like a bad tumor. And at four and a half years of sobriety, almost five years of sobriety, I hit a bad bottle. And I, I heard a guy talk I, years ago in early sobriety, I guess, and he talked about the second surrender. And until it happened to me, I didn't know what he was talking about. 
And, the, and it's not just the second, there's the third and the fourth. I mean, it's, it's endless. Because just to the point that the ego grows back and gets in charge again, do I have to have ego reduction or die? And I, I hit a tremendous bottom, and I, I had never been through the steps in the book. Even though I had just, I had taken, a, I showed a guy how to do a fourth step out of the big book, but I hadn't done it yet. I'd done the life story type, and I'd done 30-some questions in the 12 by 12. And I went back, and I went through those steps, and uh, I, uh, I've come to believe this with everything in me. I think that the, the steps... All the steps, steps 4 through 12 in Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to one end, and I think one end only. And it's really not to keep me sober. That's a byproduct, and that is a result of. But I think those steps are designed to enable me to come closer to living a life as if I'm seriously trying to live and carry out this much desperately needed decision I made in step 3 that that's the whole deal. And the reason is not so... It's, it's not even that I have to turn my will and my life over to the care of God. i got to get it out of the hands of this idiot. Right? And that because I will, I will destroy myself sober. And I'll tell you, I've, I've, got, I've, I've got on some self-will binges. The return of that ego comes back and comes back. And that's why... Uh, that's why I'm a sponsor and that's why I try to do what it talks about, page 86 and 87 every night and every morning and uh, have commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I believe in demonstrations of willingness. You know, it's, it's because in the realm of the spirit, actions seem to speak louder than words or feelings or intentions. And, and I have commitments in Alcoholics Anonymous and I have structured my life in such a manner that if you were to come to Las Vegas and you would watch me, and you would watch me even on a bad day when I'm judging everybody and I'm just inside me, I'm running the universe. You'd watch my actions and I will still look like a guy who's, who's dedicated to Alcoholics Anonymous and has surrendered. And I will show up at my commitments and I try to... I, I, I understand a principle here that, that, uh, that what I do here is more important than how I feel. And I show up and I do what I'm supposed to do. And I try to act like a guy who's surrendered. A guy that really, really is serious about the choice it talks about on page 53 where it says God is either everything or he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. What is our choice to be? And I try to walk that guy. And I get afraid and fear throws me off balance all the time. And there's an interesting line in, in the four-step inventory in the fear section. It says when we have fear, we ask God to remove the fear and then turn our attention to what he would have us not do, but be. What he would have us be. And as I started to develop a, a, a vision or a picture or a sense in, inside of me of how a surrendered guy would act. And then on a bad day, when I feel like attacking people and running the show and I'm scared to death and, and I don't know what's going on and my ego is just taken over again, I try, I ask God to remove the fear and then I try to act like the guy that I have the vision of. And what happens is, is, is if I act like that guy, it, it, it ha what seems to happen is I start to feel like that guy after a while. 
And I, uh, I guess I've always fed the wrong deal. I'm one of those kind of guys that, uh, without this, in the, in the, at the end of uh, into action in step eleven, it talks about uh, we are an undisciplined lot. Uh, they're being nice, <laughs> and we let God discipline us in this way that we've just outlined, and. It's the structure and the commitment and the action of Alcoholics Anonymous that keep me tethered to a a spiritual way of life so I can stop shooting myself in the foot sober. I've shot myself in the foot. But you know, when I I shoot myself in the foot, I don't know that I'm doing that. I think I'm defending myself against legitimate threats that need my attention and I better take care of this. And it's never that way. Because the minute I take that stance, the, the second I start acting and taking that stance, I've just joined the ranks of the unsurrendered again for my actions. Uh, and I remember years ago, uh, a guy said in a meeting that he believed that AA could also stand for altered attitudes. And I, one of my best friends is a pilot. He's got a couple planes, and I fly sometimes with him. Whenever I'm over in Hawaii, he keeps a plane over there, and then he has another one. He comes, flies back and forth on the West Coast. And, and pilots talk about attitude, but it's not. A, it's 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 an angle of approach. And the problem is, I got when I have a self-centered attitude, my angle of approach to life is the kind that whatever I'm afraid of, nine chances out of ten, I'm going to make it come true. And I'm, I'm, I'm deluded enough in my self-delusion. I think I'm, head, I'm heading for the runway, and I'm really heading for the mall. You know? <laughs> right? But you don't know you're heading for the mall until you're sitting in the wreckage. I mean, <laughs> then you realize you missed the runway. And Alcoholics Anonymous, by giving me this vision of what a surrendered guy would act like and, and his sponsor who keeps keeps corralling me into that path. Oh, you ever watch you ever watch sheep dogs that they move sheep down a certain way? That's what that's what's what happens to me is that I got my sponsor on one end who's who has no respect for my sensitivities. And then <laughs> then I got all the guys that I sponsor on the other end, which is, is a level of accountability that's really even greater than my sponsor because after a number of years, I started to awaken to something that, that I am the primary example of, of how to live this life that they look at. And out of that, I'll tell you something, out of that, I've come to the table in step six out of a desire to be a good example more than pain would have ever brought me. And I'm tethered. It's like having two sheepdogs just running around keeping me from going over here, keeping me from going over there. It's my sponsor and the guys I sponsor. And the fact that you have pounded into me the importance of doing what you say you're going to do when you say you're going to do it, showing up, making your commitments and coming early and act better than you feel and all the things that you guys have pounded into me over the years. So that most most times and most days, I walk down the spe- I walk down the street, or in, in my I, I'm in the center of my life, and my spirit seems, for the most part, unencumbered by me. And that's what always why I would always get sick again. I would just get on me, 
And I told, and wrapped up in my little plans and designs and my resentments and my judgments and the people I, I feel smugly superior to that I really need to make them see how wrong they are. And, and, the, and you know, all that and the self-gratification obsessions and all that stuff. And what happens is I just literally smother myself with myself until my spirit is not doing good. And then... Uh, I don't know how long I can stay like that until I get thirsty, until the obsession of drink returns. I don't know. But for the most part, I don't. I haven't been that way in a while. Um, and I've got, you know, it's things change in, in sobriety. Uh, this, I guess, it, a friend of mine used to used to hammer that word practice, practice, practice in step twelve. And it's funny. It, a lot of times you do stuff in AA and you do it and you do it and you do it and it's not doing, it's not working, it's not, and then something happens that's not good. And it had happened to you 10 years before. And you realize you're going through this and it's completely different than it was the last time you went. Whether it's a divorce or whether it's a financial setback or some kind of confrontation that, that's painful. Uh, and you realize that something has happened to you and you didn't do it. And I don't know how it happened. And I I hope that my I hope that somehow with the guys I sponsor in my home group that I can I can look even on a bad day like a guy who's really trying to act like he's surrendered. A guy that, that values not being in the driver's seat of my life. When I said to, to my father step three that I offered myself to him for him to build with me and do with me as he willed I took I made a commitment that I was going to try from that moment uh, and for the rest of my life to try to take a stance as if my life is no longer any of my business which is very very difficult for a guy that's been as self-obsessed and self-absorbed and self-concerned and self-focused and self-involved as I have been. Because I just worry about me, think about me, wonder about me, wonder about what you're wondering about me. I mean, I just, it's just all about me, you know, right? So, so, uh, so I, on a regular basis, uh, I start, I ask him to relieve me of this bondage of self and then conduct my life as if he has. And it's, I tell you, it's funny how, how the, the, my view, uh, the, my view of the universe has always been controlled by my actual experience. And there was a time in my life when the, this, this life was bleak, when it was bad, you couldn't trust none of it. Every, it's kind of a, it's a hostile world. I believed that. That was my judgment. It was a judgment based on my experience. The judgment affected my attitude and angle of approach to life. What happened is I made it come true continually and continually. Because if you take a stance towards life like it's going to be bad and you can't trust people, you're going to get to be right about that. You're going to get to be right about it. And somehow over the years, I've, I've really I've changed my my view of this planet and of God's world and I really to a view where I 
I really believe no matter what appears on the horizon and no matter how bleak it, it is or looks, that it may not be that way at all. Um, I'm willing to wait for, for more information. I'm willing, to, I'm willing to call my sponsor immediately when, when, the, when the enemy is coming over the horizon. You know what I mean? Because in what I've discovered nine, nine times out of ten is that it's not really the enemy. It's just something I imagine based on fear, self-centered fear. I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous not to shoot myself in the foot trying to defend myself against imagined things that, um, that don't even exist. I got a, a sponsee who said something hilarious to me one time. I don't even, I don't even know, if, I don't know if he was trying to be funny or not. He said, he said, you know, all this third step, step stuff and this turning your will over. And you guys bad rap worrying. He says like it's, he says like it's not a good deal. He says, listen, I don't think there's anything I've ever worried about that's actually happened, so maybe worrying works. <laughs> I'll tell you a little, a little story. I, I, this hit me one time when I was, I was doing a big book workshop, and we, got, we were on step seven. And uh, one of the guys I was doing with, one of the guys I sponsored, said something that... that I, I kind of get, and he, he talked about step three. And he, what he said is, he says, if step three, if the old adage about step three is true, the story of there's three frogs on a log and one of them makes a decision, jump in the water, how many are on the log? And the answer is still three because he only made the decision. And he said, if, if that's true, then it's step seven where you hear the splash. And it is in the becoming entirely ready, which is really, I think, most of our journeys in sobriety. And one of the hardest fear-wrought surrenders probably ever recorded in history had to have been the one that occurred in the Pacific in the mid-1940s. When the Empire of Japan was faced with total annihilation, Two of their industrial centers had been leveled by atomic bombs near uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They had no atomic weapons. They had no way to defend themselves against atomic weapons. They were facing absolute annihilation, not unlike what some of us face when we get sober. We are in a trap. We cannot spring. We cannot jumpstart the party, and yet we can't live without it. We're dying here, and we can't stop from killing ourselves no matter how great the desire, we have not the power. And in the Pacific fleet, they made their formal terms of surrender, which essentially could be their third step. And then they were required to do some things. They were required to make an inventory of all their defense mechanisms. And only for them, it wasn't the resentments, the judgments, it wasn't the fears that they defended themselves against, it wasn't the, the gratification binges that they found in sex and the selfish pursuit of the sex instinct. It wasn't any of that. It was their cannons and their bombs and their planes and their ships. Everything that they used to defend themselves against the world that they believed was, was out to get them, and it kind of was. I mean, they had evidence we were shooting at them and setting bombs off. And they had to inventory all their defenses and then turn them over to what they thought was out to get them. 
us and literally rendered themselves defenseless. And at that point, we could have went over there with a nominal force and annihilated them. They wouldn't have been able to even defend themselves. And I, I'll tell you, I, I, was, I have a friend who was part of the occupation force in Japan after World War II, and he told me a story. He said, I blew my mind. He said one of the major things that they did was deal with the bodies of all the suicides over in Japan, that the people who, who could not go along with losing, that, losing face like that. There was a massive suicides after World War II. But what happened coming out the backside is pretty much the same thing that happens to us. I, uh, they were forced by taking, by throwing up, by a surrendered position and a commitment to carry that out. They were forced into a life of service and an ethic of service, just as we are. I mean, that's why if this, if you're serious about this this, this decision in step three, then the last line really becomes the deal when we're asking God to take away our difficulties with this bondage of self for one reason and one reason only, so that victory over them would bear witness to those we would help, which implies that my life now is about helping people. And the Japanese took that same ethic and, and they, they, they became team players. They put self out of the picture. And they, I'll tell you, within 40 years, they owned more of, of the United States than they could have ever conquered or held by military means. And then I was over in Japan for uh, about 16 or 17 years ago for an AA conference, and I, it was really the beginning of the, it was the, of the big cultural change over there. It was back in that time. And what had happened is the new generation didn't, that didn't like this. They were, started self-oriented. And they wanted everything American. And they wanted... They, Jap, Jap, Tokyo had some of the greatest restaurants in, I've ever been to. I mean, amazing, I mean, food is an art over there. It's unbelievable. And there was one restaurant that had a line two blocks long to get into. And it was McDonald's. I saw that and I thought, oh, they're screwed. <laughs> it's the beginning of the end. <laughs> And they all wanted to wear American stuff and listen to American rock music. And it was very, you could see the, the, the me generation coming up. And then what happened over the last, right after that is their economy started taking a dive. And, and it's very similar to what happens to us. What, you know, it's like you act like a surrendered guy in Alcoholics Anonymous for 10 years and then you get your rights back. Right, and then you get you just enough self-esteem to be dangerous, and then what always happens to guys like me living unsurrendered on a life of self again is that everything starts to deteriorate, and one of two things will always have to happen: either I will re-surrender and recommit to the decision I made in step three and start living again like I'm carrying it out, or a life, or as it says in the book, uh, I will people will start to hurt me seemingly without provocation, but the truth is I've made decisions based on self. I've changed my attitude to one of self. I've changed my angle of approach to one based on me and my stuff and all about me, and I've created the conflict. I've become the producer of confusion rather than harmony. I'm now the guy who I don't even know it, but people are starting to walk on eggshells around because I'm in the driver's seat. 
and I'm the guy that's starting to feel depressed and alone and anxious and all the symptoms of untreated alcoholism of a malady of the spirit. And if you've ever been in the middle of that, as I have been in sobriety, sober, suffering from the malady of the spirit of untreated alcoholism, it's awful. It's awful. And there's a loneliness inherent in, in alcohol in, in, in that kind of malady that you don't even know it's, it's loneliness. It's not that you're lonely. It's just everybody screwed up around you. Right? And I, uh, I know that if that happens to me, uh, I will be in a bad spot. And I don't know... I. I don't know how... I think every alcoholic has a fuse. And I don't know how long the fuse is. And sometimes it's different. Sometimes it seems to change. There were times that I would get into a detox or a halfway house or end up in jail and I would swear to myself and mean it, I'm never going to drink again. And sometimes I would make 10 or 11 months. Other times I'd make 10 or 11 weeks. Sometimes I got drunk the day I got out. And it seemed circumstantially, sometimes you could make the fuse longer if you could throw enough stuff at it, like you get a motorcycle. Well, that, that makes it burn a little slower. Get a, get a girlfriend, get a relationship. Okay, that slows it down a little bit. Um, but it's all untreated alcoholism. And there's a Chuck used to talk about getting to a place where you could no longer put anything between you and you. And then what happens when the shine of everything wears off? And it just as it is with my this dear friend of mine, I'm watching him right now, and he's and he's got a perfect life, but it ain't it ain't no good. Because when it ain't no good in here, no matter how good it is out here, it ain't no good. You know what I'm saying? Because the, the malady of the spirit is really the only thing that I have to concern myself with here. Because if I ain't right in here, it, nothing's right, really. Nothing's right. I've watched uh, some dear friends with 31 and a half years of sobriety and 23 and a half years and 17 and 12 and 18 years. Uh, some dear members of Alcoholics Anonymous commit suicide sober. What do you do? What do you do if you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can't drink and you're going to insist on that position? but yet you're suffering from untreated alcoholism day after day and week after week and you have everything materially you could ever want in your life and the shine has worn off of all of it, what do you do? Day after day, week after week, month after month, you surrender or you die. And I think it's that simple. In my 19th year of sobriety, I, I went through that. It was I've gone through it several times in sobriety. And you know what's frightening? And that's why I became very sponsorable when I was 19 years sober, more than I'd, I'd, I'd upped the ante on this whole deal. Because what, I, what happened to me, and it was very frightening, is that I, I got back in the driver's seat again while still going to eight meetings a week and sponsoring guys and having commitments, and I don't know how that happened to me. It was just an incremental, small, tedious little shift of having my the center of my life is being is carrying out the decision in step three, 
helping God's kids, having a primary purpose, which is to help God's kids, people like me. And somehow my primary purpose started to shift until all of a sudden really the center of my life is me, is my stuff and my toys and my sex life and my what you think of me and how I sound in meetings and me, me. me. And I'll tell you, I didn't know that I... In the, throughout the whole shift and even sitting in the middle of being in the center of my universe I didn't know that that was happening to me and I'm not a, I don't think I'm a dumb guy but I'll tell you I could not see that because if I had seen it you'd think I would have copped to it halfway down the road on the move from, from a life of God-centeredness to a self-centeredness somewhere in that transition I would have stopped and it's whoa it turned us around. It wasn't until I was backed up against the wall. And then what frightened me out of the whole thing is how easily that transformation happened within me. And I didn't even know it until I was so deep into it that I was in a lot of trouble. And I think from that moment on, I've, I've been a pretty sponsorable guy. I, I, uh, I don't want to do that to me. See, the, I, I think alcoholism's a funny deal. I... I I think the longer the longer I'm sober, the more I understand the big book, the more I understand the workings of Alcoholics Anonymous, the more information my my ego has to put torque on my life. You know what I'm saying? It's it's like I've been educating my enemy while I'm trying to recover from a spiritual malady. Now I don't know why I'm doing that, but it's 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 funny how the ego grabs stuff out of AA. It, it'll it'll look at this. It start looking at people. Oh, well, they don't look very surrendered. <laughs> and I start. What's he up to? Thirteen stepper. Oh man, you know. Just start. And I don't know. I'm using principles and things I've come to value in Alcoholics Anonymous to elevate me to the throne of judgment and make me the center and the great I am. And I don't even know I'm doing that. And it's so like while I'm here, I've been educating. The guy that is to my demise. <laughs> and uh, It's funny when you're doing that. When I'm doing that, I can't see I'm doing that. Now, one of my sponsees, he'll call me up and start telling me what's wrong with people. I know exactly what he's doing. I can see that so clearly in him. But I can't see it when I'm doing it. Because what I'm looking for, I'm looking with. Anyway, I'm really glad to be here. Uh, I'm excited about hearing my friend Don talk, and uh, I hope that uh, somewhere on the, during this weekend I get to meet and spend some time with some of you, and it always amazes me, the person that came here who really believed with everything in me that my case was so unique and so different, and I'm sick in a way that no one will really ever understand. I said, well, the more I talk to people in Alcoholics Anonymous, the more I connect with the real truth is that I am you. And I always have been. I've always been you. And you've always been me. And the illusion of the ego that I'm in a state of separation only gets dissolved by my being able to spend some time with you. So if you're listening to me and you're sitting there and there's one part of you that's saying, Boy, this guy is really screwed up. <laughs> and another part's going and going, yeah, but I really identify with this. Let me know that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>